63. It as a property he is entitled to fully as much as you who have paid for it, for, in fact, would you be in possession of the snuff if he had not chosen it for you? As for his complaint, it is like hydrophilia, no remedy has as yet been invented for it, and we can with comfortable consciences predict that, as long as snuff is taken, and men continue to carry it about with them in snuff boxes, they are sure to be subject to the importunities of the man who carries no snuff box. Buffoon's Natural History, Sir Edward L. Lightingale and B.U.L.W.er, who, like Byron, in this one instance only, wanted a hero, had the good fortune to lay his hands upon the history of the celebrated George Barrington of picking pocket notoriety, that worthy, describing the progress he made for the good of his country, related some strange particulars of a foreign bird, called the secretary, or snake eater, which Sir Edward, from his knowledge of the natural history of his friend John Wilson Crocker, declares to be the immediate connecting link between the English Admiralty Secretary, or Toad Eater. Not exactly. Have you been much at sea? Why, Mumber, not exactly, but my brother married an admiral's daughter. Were you ever abroad? Mumber, not exactly, but my mother's maiden name was French. Fashions for December. A letter has found its way into our box, which was evidently intended for the Parisian courier des dames, but as the month is so far advanced, we are fearful that the communication will be too late for the purposes of that fashionable journal. We had therefore with unparalleled liberality inserted it in punch, and thus conferred an immortality on an ephemera. It is worthy of remark that the writer adopts the style of our foreign fashionable correspondents, who invariably introduce as much English as French into their communications. Rue de Diot, Derrière il slums de Saint-Gilles, Mon jovial Else Wells to Londres have now determined upon the winter fashions, subject only to such modifications as their wardrobes render imperative, and why von Combes bricks, butchers' trays continue to be worn on the shoulders, and sprats may be found very generally upon the heads of the Poissonniers faguses de la Porte de Billing, short pipes are much patronized by architects' assistants, and are worn either in the headband or the side of the mouth, at point d'error, a few black eyes have been seen dans la rookery, but these facial ornaments will not be general until after Boxing Day. Quandils Aldavian Drampine Forts, Hilos and Enclejacks are still patronized by Els Imaginaires of both sexes, the only alteration in the fashion being that the Hilo is cut a little more on the instep, and the Enclejack has retrograde a trifle towards the heel. With those Quivule and Alcuperegras, a great many muslin caps are seen, frequently with a hole in the crown, through which the hair protrudes, and gives a ters episu et suflico appearance. They are called els capoles to sept dialis. For an elaborate description of these elegances, vide punch, the fancy, we presume, printer's devil. Others have no opening at the top, but two streamers of the same material as the cap are allowed to play over the shoulders of els immenses carts. The original color of these capotes is white, but they are only worn by els grande cigars when the white has been very much rubbed off. Furs are much worn both by the male and female magnifics poussières, the latter usually carry them suspended from their apron strings, and appear to give the preference to hair and rabbit mantlets, though sometimes domestic felines are denuded for the same purpose, cupwis mater, come to tear, the gentlemen, on the other hand, carry their furs at the end of a long pole, and towards Saturday night a great number de petty spots may be seen enveloped in this costly material. The fantails of the chapeau d'Adolphi are spread rather broader over the shoulders, and are sometimes elevated behind. Quandils bule and alfertures souflament, 
Pewter brooches are still in great request, as are also pewter pots, which are used in the tap rooms of some discrebes particularment flamboyant so. Query mugs and glissy faces, printer's devil, but I must firmer ma trap to come to tear, at promener mees crayons, ain't see, adieu, moan surely trump, voter chum I devu, just stout established blood, ALPHONSE jams darany, fashionable intelligence, a juvenile party, among whom we noticed the two bigses, attended in Piccadilly to inspect the sewer now being made, one of the workmen employed threw up a quantity of the soil, intending no doubt to give an opportunity to the party of inspecting its properties, but as it hit some of them in the eye, they retreated rapidly, the venerable square keeper in Golden Square took his usual airing round the railings yesterday, and afterwards partook of the pleasures of the chase, by pursuing a boy into John Street, he was attended by his usual suite of children, who cheered him in his progress, following him as he ran on, and turning back so as to precede him, when he abandoned the hunt and resumed his promenade, which he did almost immediately, Bill Bump has walked for several hours in the suburbs yesterday, in order to have the advantage of exercise, he carried a basket on his head, and was understood to intimate in a loud tone that it contained sprats, which he distributed to the humbler classes at a penny a plateful, the high road to gentility, though our Mrs. Woodby's advice to her daughter, now, Charlotte, dear, attend to me, you know you're coming out, and in the best society will shine, beyond a doubt, things were not always so with us, but let oblivion seal forever shut out former days they were so ungenteel, and as for country neighbors, child, you must forget them all, and never visit any place that is not park or hall, but if you know a titled name, that knowledge ne'er conceal, and mention nothing in the world, except it be genteel, but think no more of Henry, child, his love is pure, I know, he writes delightful verses too, but cannot be your beau. He never is at Almax. Sure, from that there's no appeal, for neither gifts nor graces now can make a man genteel. You know Lord Worthless, Charlotte, would not that be quite a match, if not so very often in the keeping of the watch? He paid some damages last year, though slippery as a needle, but then such vices in appear are perfectly genteel, and you must cut the worthies there no company for you though all of them are lovely girls, and very clever too, tease true, we found them kind, when all the world were cold as steel, tease true, they were your early friends, but, then, they're not genteel, there's Lady Waxwork, who, when dressed, has nothing she can say, Miss Trifley of her lap dog's tail will chatter half the day, the Honorable Mr. Trickap cards can cheat or steal, these are the friends that suit us now, for oh, they're so genteel, Charlotte, dear, avoid the blues, no matter when, or how, for literature is quite beneath the higher classes now, though Raphael paint, or Homer sing, oh, never seem to feel, young ladies should not have a soul, it's really ungenteel, a new wine, Sir Peter Lorry sent an order to a wine merchant at the West End on Tuesday last for, six dozen of the best Ottoman port, loyalty and insanity. Half the day at least, says the editor of the Athenium, we are in fancy at the palace, taking our turn of loyal watch by the cradle of the heir apparent, the rest at our own firesides, in that mood of cheerful thankfulness which makes fun and frolic welcome, half the day, at least, a stroke of fancy especially to a heavy man is sometimes as discomposing as a stroke of paralysis, our friend of the Athenium is not to be carried away by fancy, cost free, 
his imaginative watch at the palace for who can doubt that for six hours birdie and he is in Buckingham nursery, has led him into the perpetration of various eccentricities which, when we reflect upon the fortune he must have hoarded, and the innate selfishness of our common nature, may possibly end in a commission of lunacy, as juries are nowadays brought together especially as chartists abound, excessive loyalty may be returned confirmed insanity, if island however, our duty as good citizens and fellow journalists to protest, in advance, against any such verdict, declaring that whatever may be adduced by the unreflecting persons in daily intercourse with the editor that grave and learned scribe is in the enjoyment of all the sense originally vouchsafed to him. We know the stories that are in the most unfeeling manner told to the disadvantage of the learned and inoffensive gentleman, we know them, and shall not shrink from meeting them. It is said that for one hour a day, at least, since the birth of the prince the unfortunate gentleman has been invariably occupied folding and refolding a copy of the Athenium now airing it and smoothing it down now and folding and now folding it up again. Well, what of this? The true file and our poor friend has only been, taking his turn, arranging, in fancy, the diaper of the royal nursery. That he should have selected a copy of the Athenium as a type of the swaddling cloth bespeaks in our mind the presence of great judgment. It is madness with very considerable method. A printer's devil sent either for copy or a proof deposes that our friend seized him, and laying him in his lap, insisted upon feeding him with his goose quill, at the same time dipping that noisome instrument in his ink bottle. The said devil declares that with all his experience of the various qualities of various inks used by gentlemen upon town, he never met with ink at once so muddy and so sour as the ink of the Athenium. We do not deny the statement of the devil as to what he calls the assault committed upon him, but the fact island the editor was not in his own study, but was, taking his turn, at the pap spoon of the Duke of Cornwall. Betty, the editor's housemaid, has given warning, declaring that she cannot live with any gentleman who insists upon taking her in his arms, and tossing her up and down as if she was no more than a baby, at the same time making a chirping noise with his mouth, and calling her, Poppet, and, Chickabitty. Well, we allow all this, and boldly ask, what of it? We grant the poppet, we concede the chickabitty, and then sternly inquire if an excess of loyalty is to impugn the reason of the most rationative editor. Does not the thing speak for itself? If Betty were not a fool, she would know that her master good, regular man, meant nothing more than, under the auspices of Mrs. Lilly, to dandle the Duke of Cornwall, a tax gutherer, calling upon the editor for the Queen's taxes could get nothing out of our respected friend, but, ride a cock horse to Bunbury Cross, if tax gutherers were not at once the most vindictive and the most stupid of men it is said Sir Orobiardi has ordered them to be very carnivorous this Christmas, the fellow would never have called in a broker to alarm our excellent coadjutor, but would at once have seen that the genius of the Athenium was taking his turn in Buckingham Palace, singing a nursery canzometa to the Duke of Cornwall, and is it for these? to us beautiful evidences of an absorbing loyalty of a feeling that is true as truth, for if it was a mere conventional flame we should take no note of it that the editor of the Athenium, a most grave, considerate gentleman, should be cited to graze in coffee house, and by an ignorant and an imaginative mob of jurymen voted incapable of writing reviews upon his own books, or the books of other people, the question that we would here open is one of great and social political importance. There is an end of personal liberty if the enthusiasm of loyalty is to be visited as madness. For our part, we had the fullest belief in the avowal of the poor man of the Athenium, that for half a day he is in fancy watching the little prince in Buckingham nursery, 
and yet we see that men are deprived of enormous fortunes we tremble for the copyright of the Athenium for indulging in stories, with equal probability on the face of them, for instance, a few days since weeks, a Greenwich pensioner, being suddenly rich, the reporters call him Mr. Weeks, was fobbed out of 120.000L. for having boasted among other things that he had had children by Queen Elizabeth by the way. The virginity of Royal Betsy has before been questioned that he intended to marry Queen Victoria, and that, in fact, not George III but Weeks I was the father of Queen Charlotte's offspring. Now, what is all this? But loyalty in excess? Is it not precisely the same feeling that takes the editor of the Athenium half of every day from his family, spellbinding him at the cradle of the Duke of Cornwall? Cannot our readers just as easily believe the pensioner as the editor? We can. He told me he was going to marry the Queen, thus speaks Sir R. Dobson, chief medical officer of Greenwich Hospital, of poor weeks, and I had him cupped and treated as an insane patient. Can the editor hope to escape bloodletting and a shaven head? He told me he was going to dine today at Buckingham Palace, thus spoke Weeks. Half the day at least we are in fancy at the palace, thus boast at the Athenium. The pensioner is found, incapable of managing himself or his affairs. The editor continues to review books and write articles. He Weeks also said he had once horsewhipped a lion until it became afraid of him. Where is Carter where Van A and B U R G H? If not in Bedlam, lucky, indeed. Is it for the editor of the Athenium that his weekly miscellany wherein he thinks he sometimes horsewhips lions is not quite worth 120.000L. Otherwise, certain would be his summons to Gray's Inn. We have rejoiced, as beseemed us, at the birth of the little prince, it now becomes our grave moral duty to read a lesson of forbearance to those enthusiastic people who especially if they had money may by an excess of the principle of loyalty put in peril their personal freedom. Let them not take confidence from the safety enjoyed by the Athenium editor the poverty of the press may protect him. If, however, he and other influential wizards of the broadsheet, succeed in making loyalty not a rational principle, but a mania if, day by day, and week by week, they insist upon deifying poor infirm humanity, exalting themselves in their own conceit, in their very self-abasement they may escape an individual accusation in the general folly. When we are all mad alike when we all, with the editor of the Athenium, take our half-day's watch at the little prince's cradle when every man and woman throughout the empire believe themselves making royal pep and airing royal baby linen then, whatever fortune we may have we may be safe from the fate of poor weeks, the Greenwich pensioner, who, we repeat, is most unjustly confined for his notions of royalty, seeing that many of our contemporaries are still left at liberty to write and publish. Poor dear little prince, if fed and nourished from your cradle upwards upon such stuff as that pressed upon you since your birth, what deep, what powerful sympathies will be yours with the natures of your fellow men what lofty notions of kinly fullness, and kinly duty, it may be that certain writers think they best oppose the advancing spirit of the time questioning as it does the divinity that hedges the throne by adopting the worse than foolish adulation of a bygone age. In a silly flippant book just published a thing called Cecil the author speaks of the first appearance of Victoria in the House of Lords. He says, An unaccountable feeling of trust rose in my bosom. I speak it not profanely when a writer says this. Be sure of it that, as in the present case, he goes deep as he can in profanation when I say that the idea of the yet unknown savior, a child among the doctors of the temple, occurred spontaneously to my mind. Now this book has been dogged with honey, 
the writer has been promised, an European reputation, Madame Elayathafarji has a reputation equally extensive, and he is at this moment to be found upon drawing tables, whose owners would scream or affect to scream as at an adder, at Shelley, nay. Shelley's publisher is found guilty of blasphemy in the court of Queen's Bench, and that within these few months, we should like to know Lord Denman's opinions of Mr. Boone. What would he say of Queen Victoria being compared to the Redeemer of Lord Londonderry, et hoc genusong, being, doctors of the temple? A writer in the Almanac de Squirmont says, in praise of a certain vine, this is a dish to be eaten on your knees. There are writers who, with, goosequill in hand, never approach royalty. But they write upon their knees. Q punches pencilings. Mumbrix XII. Punches information for the people. International geography. The fleet is a very peculiar isolated kingdom. Bounded on the north by the wall to the north or north wall, on the south. By the wall to the south or south wall, on the east. By the wall to the east or east wall, and on the west. By the wall to the west or west wall. The manners and habits of the natives are marked with many extraordinary peculiarities and some of the local customs are of an exceedingly interesting character. The derivation of the word, fleet, has caused many controversies, and we believe is even now involved in much mystery, and subject to much dispute. Some commentators have endeavored to establish an analogy between the words, fleet, and, fast, with the view of showing that these being nearly synonymous terms, the fleet is a corruption from the fast, or keep fast. Others again contend the origin to be purely nautical. Inasmuch as this country, like the ships in wartime, is mostly peopled with pressed men, while a third class argue that the name was originally one of warning, traditionally handed down from father to son by the inhabitants of the surrounding countries with whom this land has never been in high favor, and that the addition of the letter renders the phrase perfect, leaving the caution thus, fleet now contracted and perverted into the commonly used term of fleet, as we are only the showmen about to exhibit the lions and the dogs. We merely put forward these deductions, and tell our readers they are welcome to choose, whichever they please, our little dears, while we will at once proceed to describe the manners and habits of the natives, one great peculiarity in connection with the strange people island that the inhabitants are, from the first moment of their appearance, invariably adults, and we can positively assert the almost incredible fact that no bona fide occupant of these realms was ever seen in any part of their domain in the hands of a nurse, enveloped in the long clothes worn by many of the infants of the surrounding nations, like the Spartan youths. All these people undergo a long course of training, and exceed the age of one and twenty before they are deemed worthy of admission into the ranks of these singular hordes. They have no actual sovereign, but merely to traditionary beings, to whom they bow with most abject servility. These imaginary potentates are always alluded to under the fearful names of John Doe and Richard Rowe, though they are never seen. Still their edicts are all powerful, their commands extending to the most distant regions, and carrying captivity and caption fees wherever they go. These vermins are entrusted to the charge of a peculiar race of beings, commonly called officers to the sheriff. There is something exceedingly interesting in the ceremonious attendant upon the execution of one of these potent fiats. The manner is as follows. Having received the orders of John Doe and Richard Rowe, they proceed to the residence of their intended captive, and with consummate skill, like the eastern tellers of tales, commence their business by the repetition of some ingenious story called in the language of the captured lie, wherein the bumbill life such as their title artfully represents himself as a cousin from the country, an uncle from town, 
or some near and dear long expected and anxiously looked for return from a broad friend, should their endeavors fail in procuring the desired interview, they frequently had resort to the following practice, with the right hand finger and thumb they open a small aperture in the side of a species of garment, generally manufactured from drab broadcloth, in which they encase their lower extremities, and having thrust their hand to the very bottom of the said opening, they produce a peculiarly musical sound by jingling various round pieces of white money, which so entrances the feelings of the domestic with whom they are discoursing, that his eyes become fixed upon the hand of the operator the moment the sound ceases and it is withdrawn. The bumbill life then wink at his right eye, and with great rapidity deposit at a curious-looking coin, of the value of five shillings, in the hand of the domestic, who thereupon point at with his dexter thumb over his left shoulder to a small china closet, in which the enemy of John Doe and Richard Rowe is found, his Wellington boots sticking out of the hamper, under the straw in which the rest of his person is deposited, the bumbill life having called him loudly by his name, shout at his writ, step at up, and tap at him once gently upon the shoulder, whereupon the ceremony is completed, and the future inmate of the fleet depart at with the bumbill life. The first thing that attracts the attention of the captured of John Doe and Richard Rowe is the great care with which the entrance to his new country is guarded, for officials of the warden or minister of the said John and Richard alternately remain in actual possession of that interesting pass, to each of whom the newcomer submits his face and figure for actual and earnest inspection, for the reason that should the said new arrival by any means pass their boundary, they themselves would suffer much disgrace and obliquity, having undergone this inspection. He then proceeds to the interior of these strange domains. Walls, 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 meet him on every side, and by some strange manner of judging the newcomer is immediately known as such. The costume of the natives differs widely from the usually sported habiliments of more extended nations, caps worn by small boys in other climes here decorated the heads of the most venerable elders, and peculiarly cut dressing gowns do duty for the discarded broadcloth of astults, a newbie, or a willives. The new man's conformity with the various customs of the inmates is one of the most curious facts on record. We have been favored with the following table or scale by which time regulates the gradual advancement to perfection of a genuine, fleety, first week. Ring, union pin, watch, straps, clean boots, ditto shirt, chafe, and light waistcoat. Second week. Slippers in passage, no straps to boots, rub on toe, dirty hall, fresh dicky, black vest, today's beard. Exit ring. Third week. Full bosom stock, one bracer, indication of white chalk on seat of duck trousers, blue striped shirt, no vest, shooting jacket, small imperial, exeunt union pin and watch. Fourth week. White collar, blue shirt, slippers various, boots a little over at heel, incipient mustache, silk pocket handkerchief round neck, and a fortnight splashes on trousers. Fifth week. Red ochre outline of increased whiskers, flourishing imperial and shave a de frise mustache, dirty shirt, French cap, jersey overall, one slipper and a boot, meerschaum, dressing gown, and principal seat at the free and easy. Sixth. Everything in the worser line, called by Christian name by their bedmaker, hold their tongues, in consideration of three weeks arrears, at four shillings a week, and then all's done, and the inhabitant is complete. Elegant phrases. There are people nowadays who peruse with pleasure the works of Homer. Juvenile and other poets and satirists of the old school, and it is not unlikely that centuries hence persons will be found turning back to the pages of the writers of the present day especially punch.
and we rather just imagine they will be not a little puzzled and flabbergasted to discover the meaning, or wit, of some of those elegant phrases and figures of speech so generally used by this enlightened and reformed age. The following brief elucidation of a few of these may serve for present ignoramuses, and also for future inquirers. That's the ticket for soup, is one of the commonest, and originated several years ago. We have discovered, after much study and research, when a portion of the inhabitants of this wicked lower globe were suffering under a malady, called by learned and scientific men, poverty, and were supplied by the rich and benevolent with a mixture of hot water, turnips, and a spice of beef, under the name of soup. There are two kinds of tickets for soups in existence in London at present one, the ticket for turtle soup, or a ticket to a Lord Mayor's feast. It is only necessary to add, these are in much request, too. The ticket for Mendicity Society Soup. Beggars and such like members of society monopolize these tickets, and it has lately been discovered by a celebrated philanthropist that no respectable person was ever known to make use of one of them. This is a remarkable fact, and worthy the attention of the anti-monopolists. These tickets are bought and sold like merchandise, and their average value in the market is about one halfpenny. How's your mother? This affectionate inquiry is generally coupled with has she sold her mangle? Mangling done here, is an announcement which meets the eye in several quarters of this metropolis, and when the last census was taken by the author of the, Lights and Shadows of London Life, the important discovery was made that this branch of business is commonly carried on by old ladies. The importance especially to the landlord of the answer to this query is at once perceivable. We scarcely expect a monument to be raised to punch for these discoveries, though if we had our deserts but verbum sap. Songs for the sentimental. Number 13. Yes, we have said the word adieu. A blight has fallen on my soul, and bliss, that angels never knew, is torn from me, by fate's control, and yet the tear I shed at parting, was all my eye and Betty Martin, and thou hast sworn that never more my heart shall bow to passion's spell, but ever sadly ponder o'er the anguish of our last farewell, yet, as you still are in your teens say, tell that to the marines, and still perchance thy faithful heart may pine, and break, when I am gone, while better tears, and bid, start, as oft thou musest sad and lone, I've read such things in many a tale but yet it's, very like a whale, pen and palette portraits, taken from the French, by A-L-P-H-O-N-S-E-L-E-C-O-U-R-D, Paris, passage to L'Opera, Escalier B-O-3-M, my dear Punch, I salute you with reverence I embrace you with affection I thank you with devout gratitude, for the many delightful moments I have enjoyed in your society. I regularly read your, London chivalry, it is magnificent superb. What wit, what agissary, what exquisite badinage is contained in every line of it. You are the veritable monarch of English humor. Hail, then, great fun and buell. Punch the first. Long may you live, to flourish your invincible baton, and to increase the number of your laughing subjects. Your, physiology of the medical student, has been translated and the avidity with which it is read here has suggested to me the idea that sketches of French character might be equally popular amongst English readers. With this hope I send you on the commencement of a physiological and pictorial portrait of, the lover. I have chosen him for my leading character, because his madness will be understood by the whole world. Love, mon cher ami, is not a local passion. It grows everywhere like but I am anticipating my subject, which I now commit to your hands with sentiments of the profoundest respect and esteem, A-L-P-H-O-N-S-E-L-E-C-O-U-R-D, 
Chapter I. The author dedicates his work to the fairer half of the creation, gentle woman, beautiful enigma, whose magnetic glances and countless charms subdue man's sterner nature to you. I dedicate the following pages. The subject on which I am about to treat is the gravest, the lightest, the most decided, the most undefined, the most earthly, the most spiritual, the saddest, and the gayest, the most individual, and at the same time the most universal you can imagine, to you. Ladies, I address myself, you who form the keys on which the eternal and infinite gamut of love has been run from creation's first hour till the present moment tell me how I may best touch the chords of your hearts, come around me, ye earthly divinities of every age, rank, and imaginable variety, buds of blushing sixteen, full-blown roses of thirty, haughty court dames, and smiling city beauties, come like delicious phantoms and fill my mind with images graceful as your own forms, and melting as your own hearts. Thanks, gentle spirits, ye have heard my call, and now, inspired by you, I seize my pen, and give to my paper the thoughts which crowd upon my mind. What is love? It is easier to answer this question by a thousand instances, than by one definition, which can comprehend them all. What is love? It is anything you please. It is a prism through which the eye beholds the same object in various colors, it is a heaven of bliss, or a hell of torture, a thirst of the heart and appetite which we spiritualize, a pure expansion of the soul, but which sooner or later becomes metamorphosed into an animal passion a diamond statue with feet of clay, it is a dream a delirium, a desire for danger, and a hope of conquest, it is that which everyone abjures, and everyone covets, it is the end, the great end, and the only end, 